Well, we come back this morning to our studies from the book of 2 Corinthians. As we work our way, it seems kind of slowly these days, through uh, the letters of the Apostle Paul. And we come this morning to the latter part of the fifth chapter of the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're working our way, I think, just on a snail's pace through 2 Corinthians, principally because I've never preached on it before. I've never heard anybody else preach on 2 Corinthians before. And um, it's a book that tends to be overlooked. And it should not be, because it's a very important book, particularly in our understanding of the, of the gospel, of the ministry of the church, and the ministry of the word of God. And, and Paul's writing to a church in Corinth that are really infatuated with um, the things that made teachers and preachers popular in the ancient world. And that was some measure of ability to speak well, uh, to be charismatic in speaking, And when Paul comes among them and he does not deliver the goods in terms of what they think is important, they're judging by appearance. Well, um, his his letters are weighty and strong, but his his personal presence is is not. And they were confounded by that. And certainly, as they looked at uh, the things that are prized and appreciated by their culture, um, not unlike our own culture, a certain amount of... um, talent in areas of uh, success, uh, people measure success, um, you live a good life in which is basically problem free and this man went through so many difficulties, so, many, so much trouble and that he recounts in this letter and they thought well how could that possibly be a true apostle of Jesus Jesus wouldn't let his, his apostles go through those kind of situations and circumstances so they had a, a whole erroneous read on the subject of what was important and uh, what was to be valued and how to understand the uh, ways of God with his people. Um, This is a gospel in which it's a crucified Messiah that we proclaim. It's not a Jesus who came uh, upon the white charger of of victory um, smashing his enemies to bits in conflict and victory that he won through um, the means of, uh, of, of, of arms and of military might. He came in weakness. He came in lowliness. He came um, just to, to not to be served, but to serve. And ultimately to give his life a ransom for many. And uh, the life of the ministry is in keeping with the life of Jesus. It's a life in which we are crucified. And we are show forth the life of Christ in the midst of the reality of death that we die to self, we die to the world we die to uh, popularity we die to our own influence um, and we look to serve we look to serve others and bring forth fruit to God that only God can bring forth and uh, in a real sense and so um, these are people that gloried in their appearances and Paul says they're all wrong because again, you go back to the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we're told that man does look on the outward appearance. That's a reality. And that's all we can see. We can't see people's hearts. So we look upon the outward appearance, and we make our judgments from there. But the reality is that the Lord is not impressed with outward appearance. He's the one that looks upon the heart. Yeah, he chooses the, uh, the ruddy uh, lad that uh, is out there with the, with the sheep uh, to be the king of Israel, uh, David and not his brothers that were sturdier and taller and more promising looking lads. Uh, So um, that's something that these Corinthians needed to understand. 
need to understand that you can't judge things just by appearances. Um, God is the God who's concerned about the heart. And uh, the ministry of the Word of God, again, comes um, into, that, uh, into that focus, that uh, death uh, comes prior to life. Life emerges out of death. Um, Paul speaks of himself, himself as um, uh, being under the sentence of death. Uh, that it might be apparent that we do not hope in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. Um, he speaks of himself as uh, carrying about in his own body the, the, the death, of, death of Christ, that the life of Christ might be manifested in him. Um, again, it's not promising when you look upon somebody and what, are the, what do you see? Well, initially you see death, a message about death, a message about a crucified Lord. And uh, you shake your head and say, what in the world uh, will people believe these days? <laughs> well, the reality is that this message of the gospel, he said in the first letter, is foolishness to the Greek and it's a stumbling block to the Jew. Um, to those uh, who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Well, one of the things we've seen as we've worked our way through uh, chapter 5 is that um, Paul is focusing more upon uh, his ministry, not so much in terms of the sort of men and situations and circumstances that God uses, but he's more focused upon the actual message of the gospel that he proclaims. That, um, again, the message is about a crucified Savior whom we do not know after the flesh. In other words, we don't, we don't weigh and evaluate Jesus in accordance with human reason, by human standards. Um, we evaluate Jesus in terms of uh, the revelation of God in him. What scripture itself teaches us about the, uh, the Christ who was promised by Old Testament prophecy, who came in history, um, the Jesus whose life and death must be judged, not by, again, uh, the standards of the culture, but by uh, God's own act in sending him. And the way, that act is, uh, the way that act is anticipated in the Old Testament and the way the apostolic gospel message uh, understands and interprets uh, the coming of Jesus into the world. Um, and so uh, the reality is that uh, we find in Christ a new creation God's making all things new all things are passed away behold all things become new and, and may I say I owe Tim an apology this morning because a couple weeks ago when we were looking at that passage in um, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 17 I was searching for um, you know, we looked at chapter 66 where there's the picture of the new heavens and the new earth I will create a new heavens and a new earth God says in chapter 66 of the book of Isaiah and where he says that the old things won't be remembered anymore so that part of it is the old things will be passed away but there's also a passage in the book of Isaiah that speaks about all things becoming new and I was searching for it in a passage that in my mind I was thinking about in the uh, in the section that oftentimes is called the Apocalypse of Isaiah. That's chapter 24 to 27 is the Apocalypse of Isaiah. And right after that, I knew there was, I, there was a statement that I was, I was sure it was there, and I was wrong. And Tim said, no, chapter 43, and he was absolutely right. And I was uh, um, just all caught up in my own thoughts, uh, and so I didn't consider it. But uh, yeah, it's, sometimes it's good to have a cross-reference Bible and to look and see where the other passages are because it was in chapter 43 where God speaks of his making all things new. So that's what we have in the gospel. That's what we have in the Lord Jesus. This new creation is not to be found at the end of the age. It's to be found in the middle of the time when Jesus came. 
the Son of God has come. And this new creation, again, is not so much an end, an end day thing, it's a mid-history thing. Christ has come to bring newness of life. He's come to bring a new creation about. He's come to uh, uh, dispel the darkness that once pervaded solely in a fallen world. Uh, the light is shown out of, out of Galilee. Um, and this light comes to dispel darkness. comes to bring life in the midst of death. It comes to bring joy in the midst of sadness and sorrow. And it comes to bring happiness in the face of bitterness. It comes to bring meaning and purpose in the face of hopelessness. These are the things that are passing away. And all these things that Christ comes to bring are the new things of newness of life and new creation and new birth. And again, all things made new. And so um, it's this message of the gospel that consists in Jesus coming to bring a new creation about. Um, That's this message of reconciliation. Again, all things are passed away. The enmity, the the warfare, the conflict um, that pervaded the human race and still does where Christ does not reign. But yet, within the hearts and lives of his people, the conflict is over. The warfare is over. We're not, we're not looking to fight people. <laughs> our our, 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 our um, warfare, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against the spiritual darkness of the world. That's what we fight against. You think about people that are in enmity with each other, and all they can do is speak ill of one another. And uh, they make everything personal. And uh, you know, husbands and wives get into that mentality where there's constant attacking of one another. And there's no recognition, well, God's yoked us together to be on the same team here. And you know, though we might have difference of opinions, well, that, that might constitute a problem, but we address the problem. We don't attack the person. We don't attack people. We love people. We regard people, we respect people, even if they're not Christians, they're image bearers of God. And we don't demean them. So you, it's hard to be on the internet when you see all the ways in which people demean one another uh, because they can't argue civilly. They can't discuss things in a way that is addressing problems, addressing uh, issues that are rooted in sin, but making everything uh, the conflict of, of, of persons. And Paul says our message is a message of reconciliation. And it's a message of reconciliation that first of all has to do with God, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or reckoning their transgressions to them. So God is the God who comes to a world in rebellion against him, and he establishes the terms of peace. There is reconciliation with God. Romans 5, Tony was talking about when he first came to the church, we were in Romans chapter 5. Well, Romans chapter 5 begins on that very note. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There's the peace treaty that the covenant of God's grace and goodness is bestowed upon us so that there's no longer the conflict that reigns, that that is to be waged. Um, And then there's the peace we're to have with one another. Again, the reconciling work of of Jesus has not only that vertical dimension of our relationship to God, but has to do with one another as well. That the work of the cross has come to um, take the things that were most um, apparent in the ancient world, 
where there was enmity, and that was uh, Jew and Gentile, male and female, and um, slave and free. Those are the areas where there was most uh, bitter enmity. The whole Jewish tradition, every day, the Jewish man would pray that prayer. I've told you it before. It's in the Jewish prayer books. I remember sitting in my mother's home, and she had a Jewish prayer book. <laughs> I opened it up, and I began to look at the blessings and, 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 and the thanksgivings that were to be prayed on a daily basis. And there I'm looking at it. I'm saying, this is not just something Christians have told me. This is something that's right there in the Jewish prayer book. I thank you, Lord. I'm not a woman. I'm not a Gentile. And I'm not a slave. Well, okay, at least they're thankful for, to God, but it just showed the enmity that was in their hearts against those people. Those people were less human, less to be considered as, um, in terms of dignity. And the gospel comes and reestablishes human dignity. It comes to reestablish human relationships upon a basis in which we recognize one another's dignity before God as image bearers. And um, so... What God does in Ephesians 2 is he tears down the middle wall of partition that separated the Jew from Gentile that consisted in the ordinances of the law that made a Jew an offense to the, to the Gentile because look at those people, what they do in their circumcision and their diet and all the rest. And of course the Jew looked upon the Gentile in a similar way. And all those things are done away with. And God's made one new man in Christ Jesus. There's a new man. A new Adam that's come to birth in Christ Jesus. And so that's the basis of our reconciliation with God and with one another. So Paul's writing to this church in which there's conflict. And he's looking to address the conflict, not by saying, oh, there, there, guys, you know, you really ought to get on with one another because, uh, you know, Christians ought to get on with one another. And so we can moralize the the benefits of peaceableness and kindness and and gentleness and all the rest. And and that's not all wrong, but there's something even better and superior in terms of the way in which uh, the gospel of the grace of God should affect us is that it's not just that, well, this is moral, but this is something that the gospel mandates because this message of reconciliation calls us to unity with Jew and Gentile with slave and free with male and female calls us to unity and oneness in the Lord Jesus Christ and so the people at Corinth that were against Paul and they were in their parties I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter um, Paul says this message of reconciliation is not just something I'm preaching to the world he says, look, let's read it in verse uh, 18, he says, all this is from God, this whole matter of the work of a new creation. This is all God's doing. This doing of God is in Christ or through Christ. He reconciled us to himself and gave us, this us apostles, the ministry of reconciliation. Now we have not only a a message of reconciliation, an accomplishment of reconciliation in Christ, but a ministry of reconciliation to proclaim to the world. That is, that... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So that's our work. Our work is the proclamation of the message of reconciliation on the basis of what God has done in reconciling the apostles to himself and then giving them this ministry of reconciliation. Is Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us, we implore you, you Corinthians, church, wait a minute, we're already reconciled. We already got that blessing. We don't need to hear a message of the gospel any longer calling us to reconciliation. And Paul says, au contraire. <laughs> to the contrary, no. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. No, we've been reconciled. Well, have you been reconciled? What's this business of, I'm a Paul, I'm a Peter, I'm of Apollos? What's that business of this whole party that's so um, degrading Christ's own apostle as to make all the slanders that they've been guilty of against him? Now, and I don't think Paul's writing this through his own self-interest. He's writing it for the interest of the church. The church needs to reflect the gospel. And people need to come in the midst of a Christian congregation and not think, well, this is a bunch of angry, boring, contentious, difficult, hard to approach, hard to get along with people. We're not to be that. Because how does that reflect a message of reconciliation? How does that reflect a ministry of reconciliation? How does that affect... The, the idea that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself well it doesn't represent it very well does it it seems it's a contrary message that's being proclaimed by the lives of the people um, and now they want to talk about the God who comes to reconcile it's hard to believe that they really take it seriously because they're not demonstrating it in the way they relate to one another so there needs to be the proclamation of the gospel not only in proper words but also in proper actions and the proper way that we live and the proper way that we relate to one another. Then Paul makes one final statement in the fifth chapter. And just before we get there, any questions, comments, concerns about anything, place we've been up to this point? So here in this final word, we read this. Paul says, for our sake, he, in the context that would be be reconciled to God, it would be God. God would be the uh, preceding um, noun that uh, that pronoun belongs to. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's astounding to me how Paul could say so much in so little space. <laughs> Packed into these words is just so much important information. But yet it's also, because it's condensed, because it's packed in, uh, it tends sometimes to get misunderstood. Or again, it tends to be overlooked. Um, and this is, of course, a passage that does relate to what we call the doctrine of the atonement. Um, and Paul has already addressed the doctrine of the atonement. Uh, he did it earlier in the 14th verse, the love of Christ constrains us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. There's been a death that has taken place. And the death of Christ that leads to the death of others. All die in him. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who loved them and who died for them. 
I'm sorry, who for their sakes died and was raised. So Jesus died for their sakes. Jesus died that they might die. Jesus died and was raised that they might be raised unto newness of life. He addresses um, the theme of the atonement again. And we saw that God was in Christ reconciling the world to themselves. uh, uh, Reconciling the world to himself. And what does that mean? It means not imputing their trespasses. It means not laying their sins against them. The 32nd Psalm says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is not reckoned, whose sins are not imputed. The idea of the imputation of sin is the idea of putting it to their charge. It comes from the language of um, um, the ledger books. Uh, If you're an accountant, you keep books and you have um, debits and you have assets. You have things that are on the, 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 the positive side, things on the negative side, things in the red, things in the black. And um, when you have an abundance of debits, you have abundance of debts, you have abundance of things on the negative side, you're in a lot of trouble. You're in a lot of trouble. And our sins have brought us much to the debit side. Um, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is the the terms of the Lord's Prayer. It's not just sin. Sin is, is debt. Because in a sense, we owe God love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We owe him uh, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And every infraction, every disobedience, everything that falls short of that standard, it really puts us in debt. It puts us uh, on the debit side. We've not honored God. We've not obeyed God. These things are debts. And they're debts that must be paid. And Jesus comes as the one who it appears to me, he pays the debts so that we might not have to pay the debt. So that God would not impute our trespasses to us, that he imputes our trespasses to Jesus. But the way Paul says this, as he says it, um, that he made him to be sin. He made him to be sin. And, um, you know, how do you take that? It's a strong statement. He made him, Jesus, to be sin. Though he knew no sin. Um, There was no sin in Jesus. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Uh, Which of you convict me of sin? Is what he said to um, the the Pharisees when they uh, attacked him. Um, He was made sin. How in the world was he made sin? Well, again, I think you have to realize Paul's talking condensed language. um, And... He's probably referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system, in which he uses that language of the sacrificial system many times to speak of the death of Jesus. Um, Ephesians 5 and verse uh, 2, he says, uh, Walk in love as, Christ, as God loved us. Um, I'm sorry, let me get it right before my. Yeah, it's uh, Ephesians 5 and uh, verse 1 Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And that language of a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God is currently Old Testament. It has to do with the sacrificial system. It has to do with the kind of offering that's called a burnt offering. Jesus was a burnt offering, Paul's saying. That was the offering that was completely consumed in fire. And the fire was went up to heaven as a fragrant smell, as a fragrant offering. God smelled the sacrifice of the burnt offering 
and um, was pleased. And again, that's more metamorphic language. Um, I'm sorry. Not metamorphic. (laughs) It's uh, anthropological. It's using the things pertaining to man to... um, because we don't know God in all of his fullness, that's how we have to think. Um, I'm sorry, not anthropological. What's my, what's, I'm really messing up language. Um, anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic, thank you. The form of, yeah, metamorphosis, I was getting anthropos and morphe and mixing them up in different words. So let's get back to the right words. It's, uh, yeah, it's anthropomorphic. It's viewing. God in the form of man. When men can be appeased with a good meal that a wife makes for her husband when he gets home, he walks in the door, he's grouchy, <laughs> and suddenly he smells, what's that in the kitchen? That smells wonderful. <laughs> and suddenly the grouchiness is gone, and he sits down to a great meal. And it's something of the picture. And it's meant to be a picture. It's not meant to be literally smoke ascends into the presence of God and God smells it and he delights in it. Because first of all, God is not a man. He has no nose to smell with. He's not smelling. It's, 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 it's conveying something to us as humans in our sphere of understanding as it pertains to God and our relationship to him. So it speaks of God being pleased with an offering that's being offered to him. When everything is given to him. Because there's nothing that you take of a burnt offering and you eat it yourself. It's totally dedicated to God. It's like a a dedicatory offering. Completely dedicated to God. Jesus was completely dedicated to God in his obedience to him. And his obedience to him that led him to die the death of the cross in obedience to the Father was pleasing in the eyes of God. So one of the aspects of the death of Christ was that it pleased God to make him the offering. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief when he makes him a sacrifice for sin. So part of the sacrifice, sacrificial system um, that conveys something of what Jesus has done is that burnt offering. That wholly dedicated offering that's offered unto God that's pleasing to him. But then there's another kind of offering which is a sin offering. And uh, you look at the book of Leviticus, you'll see in chapter 1 that it's the burnt offering that's really the basic kind of offering that's given. In fact, the altar upon which all the meat offerings were given in the Old Testament was the altar outside of the tent of meeting. It was called the altar of burnt offering. The bronze altar was called the altar of burnt offering. That burnt offering altar was where you brought the sin offering as well, as well as the um, the other offerings that the Lord required. There's a reparation offering, there was an offering of atonement that was a, a, for the priests and their service. There's all kinds of different offerings, about five or six different offerings that the um, book of Leviticus expresses. And, but the burnt offering was the basic thing, and then other offerings were to be understood um, as doing other more focused things like repairing relationships or in the sake in the sense of um, the sin offering uh, addressing the question of known sins that you come to confess because part of what the um, the sin offering required was the confession of sin it was also you know so specific sins that people committed and then it was a sin offering in which 
the action, I think burnt offerings did this too, but the action was that the worshiper who came and brought the sin offering would place his hands upon the animal that would be the bull that would be offered up. And the idea was that that person wouldn't just touch it, wouldn't be slight touch. Well, um, no, it's you're actually putting your weight, your whole weight upon that beast. So that there's supposed to be, at least in the understanding of the worshiper, something of an identification that takes place between the worshiper and the offering. That this offering that's given up unto God is united to the worshiper. And then that action of pressing in upon the offering, that's what's designed to be conveyed. So that when that offering goes upon the altar and is sacrificed for sin, the notion is that offering represents me. That offering is offered up instead of me because I deserve to be where the beast is that dies because my sins are worthy of death. So that's the point of instruction for the worshiper to recognize that his sins are worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. And so uh, Jesus is said to be not just sin in some uh, sense um, of... um, I don't know how he becomes sin, but he becomes a sin offering. He is made to be a sin offering for us so that we identify with him and he's come to identify with us. And his death for us is the death that we ourselves deserve. So that through him, our sins are pardoned, not imputing to them their trespasses. I think the positive side of that is that the sins that we've committed when we uh, kind of lean into Jesus and there's a word in the Old Testament for faith that actually speaks of leaning upon the object of your faith you're leaning into the object of your faith just as you would be leaning in to that animal that's being sacrificed for your sins and so faith in Jesus is a leaning into Jesus and becoming so identified with Jesus that we recognize that our sins he took away. And our sins he took away because um, there was, as well as a reckoning of our sins away from us, there was a reckoning of our sins to Jesus. So that there was something of a substitution that went, um, you know, where he became sin and guilty of sin as a sin offering for us. And so he discharged the whole weight of our sins in the death that he died for us. He was made to be sin for us, though he knew no sin. There's no guilt in him, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace went upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. The benefits of him, of his grace and righteousness to come to us. And so Paul says the whole work of Jesus is a work of atonement. It's a work of sacrifice. It's a work of sacrifice of a sin offering in which our sins are laid to his charge and he discharges the guilt of our sins completely as he was wounded for us and made to be a sacrifice for sin for us, became guilty for us. But then the other part of the story is Paul just doesn't end there that he was made to be sin for us but there was another 
end to this. There was another uh, reason for this, is that in his becoming sin for us, there's also the so that, or to the end that. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. So he's become sin for us. And in him, we become the righteousness of God. Now, there's a lot of debate as to exactly what the righteousness of God means. In some places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul seems to be speaking of a a righteousness that is a righteousness that God gives um, because of Jesus' obedience, because of his goodness, that we are made to be righteousness in him. Think of the... uh, terms of the book of Jeremiah that speaks of um, the Lord our righteousness, the Lord who is our righteousness, that the Lord himself becomes our righteousness um, in that we are given um, righteousness because of his righteousness. But it's something that uh, as our sins become no longer reckoned to us, his righteousness does become reckoned to us. There is this accounting book thing that God does. I used to illustrate it in terms of a report card. You all know what it is to get your report card at the end of a a marking period and you want to hide it away from your parents because sometimes the marks weren't very good. I usually got good marks in some subjects, very good marks in some subjects, very bad marks in others. Conduct was one of them. He used to rate us on conduct. (laughs) And Tim knows what this is in the school system of New York City back in the day or New Jersey back in the day. And so you'd get these report cards that would be uh, almost horrific to think about of your, your parents seeing them. But there had to be a reckoning. There had to be a time when you brought the report card to your parents because they needed to sign it. Unless you're going to forge their signature, they're going to have to see it. So, what would it be like to come before God's presence with our report card? If you rate our grades in terms of obedience to his laws, and you go down the list of the laws and you use the Ten Commandments as a guide for this and you ask the question, how have you done? And the whole question of having no other gods before the Lord, before having Him exclusively as your God, uh, worshiping Him um, with fullness and of uh, obedience, uh, honoring His name and honoring His day and look at all those statements uh, of the Word of God with respect to what we owe God with respect to his worship, with respect to his service, with respect to having him as our God, as our, as our Lord. Well, in all those categories, if you're honest, you say, I've broken those lost times with that number. And I've not broken them outwardly, I've broken them in my heart. I think of the, the law, the, the Old Testament that speaks of the iniquity of our holy things. Even sometimes it's our holy things that are iniquitous. Um, but you wouldn't want to come before God with that report card. Uh, the rest of the commandments have to do with our responsibilities and duties to other people. With respect to murder. Oh, great. I'm free there. I haven't done that. And then, of course, you read in the Gospel of Mark of Matthew that Jesus said, He that is angry with his brother without a cause has violated the commandment about murder. And he that is, had lust within his heart has violated the commandment with respect to fornication. And you realize the command about coveting turns all of the commandments 
from something just being external to something being internal and you realize guilty at all points guilty at all points you wouldn't come want to come before God with that kind of report card but what the gospel does is Jesus takes our report card and he takes the penalty for our bad marks takes the penalty for our sins and our transgressions he was made to be the sin offering for that whole record that's appalling and abominable and worthy of anything but life worthy of death and he takes that report card and he pays the penalty for our sin but then he does something more let's put Jesus on the list of those to be graded and how do we grade him in terms of his relationship to his father I always do the things that please my father he says he was obedient unto death the death of the cross in every area of life Jesus honored his father loved his father with his heart, mind, soul and strength we're going to see it this morning He's going to express, in the morning worship how he expresses in John 14 at the end of John 14 that um, he, he, he obeys the father's command that the world would know that he loves the father What about his relationship to other people? He went about doing good. It's the report that uh, Peter gives. Simple statement. That's what he did. He went about doing good. Uh, healed the sick. Fed the hungry. Multiplied the loaves and fish. Raised the dead. Um, showed compassion to the multitudes. Again and again and again we see that Jesus was one who knew no sin and not only that he knew the fullness of righteousness in every way he pleased the father and the God who comes to us in the gospel says my son has taken your report card and he's discharged your sins in full and he now comes and gives you his report card so that we become the righteousness of God in him but though I think there is truth and substantial truth in the notion that we become the righteousness of him in terms of the reckoning or the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us, I really don't think that's sufficient to what Paul's getting at here. That becoming the righteousness of God in him is not only that we get his legal righteousness, as you one might say, um, his good grades in place of our bad grades, but that in him we're given a heart of righteousness we're given a hunger and a thirst for righteousness we're, giving, we're given you know, what the Jeremiah called the law written within our hearts and our minds so that righteousness becomes something not just external to us but internal in us becomes something that we long for something we desire we, we're burdened with the sins of this world. That's what blessed are those that mourn. Um, we're burdened with the reality that um, we see around us with the inhumanity of people to one another. The horrific things that are done under the sun. And, you know, the things you see in the newspaper, just so distressing newspaper, you get a 24-7 on cable television. Um, the horrific things that are done that are so absolutely distressing. Uh, and things that we just, you know, we, we learn to 
to kind of acclimate ourselves to the fact that the Ukrainians are experiencing today, right now, the things that they're experiencing at the hands of the Russian soldiers, and even the things that the Russian soldiers are experiencing because of the foolishness of their leaders. Or you think of the things that they're experiencing in um, the Horn of Africa, where in uh, southern Sudan, famine has just taken the lives of, of, of thousands upon thousands of people. And uh, it doesn't seem as if that those conditions are going to lift anytime soon. And then you move out towards the, the coast and see in Somalia, famine conditions there as well. People are actually starving to death. And their government's really doing little to allow um, things to be to relieve to relieve the, the the situation, and of course, COVID has been another thing that has taken up so many of the resources of these groups that look to minister to these people in great need and distress, compassion ministries and such. And it takes the breath out of you. I mean, you can just get just torn to pieces just looking at these things that happen under the sun. But yet people become acclimated to it. And they become indifferent to it. And you think of whole cultures that have acclimated themselves to the concentration camps of Germany. And even the people that have been in the employ of the German armies, and not just Germany, not in World War II, the Holocaust, but so many other places of the world, doing the things that people do in their inhumanity to other people. It's, it's just heartbreaking and horrific. But if you're a Christian, you never lose sight of the horrific nature of it. Think of the book of um, Ezekiel that speaks of the man with the, um, with the inkhorn, the inkwell. He's, he used to go around the city of Jerusalem. He's put a mark on everyone that sighs and cries for the abominations that are done in the land. And then God sends the second guy through the city with the sword. And it was to take the life of all that didn't have the mark. So in other words, everyone that didn't sigh and cry for the abominations that were done in the land were deemed guilty. They were culpable. Now, I think that's a vision. I don't think that was actually happened. That an avenging angel went out and killed everyone in the city. Ultimately, the Babylonians did the job uh, when the Babylonians came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. But the point is, God's saying they're guilty. They're culpable because they have no moral center, they have no sense of right and wrong that they wouldn't sigh and cry for the abominations that are done in the land so righteousness is something that's inwrought it's something that's not just external and legal and in Christ, though it is and that assures our right standing with God but there's also that inward righteousness that the gospel brings to where we're taught to deny ungodliness and worldly lust still as soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And I think it's wrong just to limit the concept of righteousness just to the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. There's also the impartation of righteousness within the heart. It's not only something that God does um, for us, it's something God does to us and in us by the power of the gospel in the power of regenerating grace. So anyway, set those both before you. Any comments, questions? About the whole question of the imputation of Christ's righteousness and impartation of righteousness, imputation of our sins to Jesus, and is becoming sin for us as a sin offering.
Again, so much of uh, Paul's language, and it's not really understood, but it is rooted in the Old Testament. It is rooted in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's why it's one of the grievances I have <laughs> of the modern church is we, we study the Old Testament so little. We don't explore its, its, its depths, and uh, we think we can get by just uh, by well, studying the Pauline epistles. You know, it's great to study the Pauline epistles because Paul was a great expert on the Old Testament, but we don't really understand Paul's his, uh, the world of his thinking if we don't understand the Old Testament, if we're not coming to grips with what the Old Testament itself says. So anyway, just set that before you. Um, and then you see in chapter 6, what is he doing? Well, he's going on to um, quote the Old Testament. You see it in verse 2, for he says... In a favorable time, I've listened to you in a day of salvation. I've helped you. But that's a quote from the book of Isaiah. And then in the latter part, uh, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. That's a quotation from the book of Leviticus. So again and again, you see uh, the apostle uh, quoting from the Old Testament, citations from the Old Testament, as well as um, allusions to the Old Testament and its teaching. Well, if there are no questions, uh, I don't, don't think it's good to break ground yet in the, the chapter 6. plan to do that, God willing, next week. But uh, let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in Your Word. Once again, we thank You for the, the brilliance of the Apostle and uh, the steadfast commitment he had to truth and righteousness the steadfast commitment he had to the gospel of your grace to live it out consistently and to live it out in a way that was not consumed with his own interests but consumed with the interests of the God and Master, the Lord whom he served. And we pray that we ourselves will be like-minded. That, Father, we would not be caught up with looking to view things after the flesh by appearances or by human standards you would see all things in the light of your truth and your word would govern our outlook your word would govern our priorities and our values and our things we're committed to and the things that we love we pray we would be a people of reconciling grace that we would be a people that would endeavor to be peacemakers and endeavoring to Uh, show forth the power of the new creation in the way we live among the people of God. If visitors come amongst us this morning, they would not be repelled, but they would be drawn to us because of the power of grace they see operative in the lives of your people. We pray that you'd hear our prayers. We pray that you'd fill our hearts with joy for what you've given us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you for him who though he himself knew no sin, became sin for us, that we in him would become the righteousness of God. We ask you to hear our prayers for his sake. Amen.